Hello, 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 and welcome to this week's episode of Not D&D. I am your host, Jessica, and joining me this week, we have Richard, who created the wonderful game, the Any Award-winning game, Moonlight on Roseville Beach. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is really exciting. I'm so excited to have you on. Like many people, I discovered this um, fantastic document, um, this... uh, uh, and the tagline uh, had me straight away because I saw it on the Any Spotlights Award. So many congratulations for you. And the thank tagline you, I saw you. was uh, a queer game of disco and cosmic horror. And I was like, instantly sold. Fantastic. <laughs> um, it, does that summarize the game really well? Do we need to know any more? Is that? It's, 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 it's very much uh, a horror game with a strong horror comedy lean where we're, we're working on some stuff right now. There'll be a little less horror comedy still has some some comic potential there um and uh, it is it is very much uh a tribute to 1970s uh gay beach towns or queer beach towns absolutely so. love it i'm so excited to talk to you more about this because i just uh, the theme uh the art direction of it everything about it i thought was so great when i read about it so i had to have you on so i'm so glad you had the time to talk to me um if you are watching live uh please do get involved and ask any questions uh we'll try to answer them and if you're listening to the podcast any things we talk about any links will be all in the show notes show notes so you can just click through and have a look there but before we dig into talking about the game i'm going to be very nosy and invasive Richard and ask about you and your life um so tell me what about uh, your first experiences with tabletop role-playing games Uh, do you remember the first game you played I the first game I know I bought was the old Mulvey basic set of D&D so sorry not D&D fans who didn't want to hear me mention that but it was it was was a a much different game uh And then I think the first game I actually played was a friend's copy of the AD&D books. But, you know, no one could find everything for all books, for all uh, concurrent editions of the game. Okay. So we were sort of just piecing the game together for bits and pieces. I think we, we had a player's handbook and the GM screen and a copy of the basic set. And we just sort of winged it, uh, which was a blast. Uh, so that was my very first, and I, I went away from games for a long, long time, uh, and then came back to as a World of Darkness fan in the in the nineties, uh, which I think that I think way more identifiable for for a lot of for a lot of contemporary listeners to uh, to kind of jump into the World of Darkness in the nineteen nineties, and then I uh, got to work for White Wolf very briefly in the in the late nineties, early aughts, uh, and then uh, just sort of. I think as as people I know on uh, on the on the Pandas Talking Games pod, podcast, I became polygamous, uh, and that was my sort of first you know time I really uh, started playing multiple games at once. Is, is sort of after that point, so uh, that's how I got involved and uh, kind of stayed involved, and you know we came back. So I love that phrasing, polygamous. I've, I've not heard it before. <laughs> yeah. And of course, because we're live, I'm about to have a coughing fit, so I do apologise. But you were talking a little bit about um, the Any Judges Spotlight Awards. Can you tell us a little bit Mm -hmm. how that's changed the game and the audience? Uh, That has been pretty exciting. Uh, We went from, I mean, we, we launched in late December digitally and early February physically. Uh, and uh, had sold fairly well, but in the time since the any judges spotlight announcement, I think we we sold as many copies as 
the first two quarters of the year put together. I, I hate, I sort of hate that I've become the kind of publisher who now thinks in terms of in, in quarters of the year. Um, but, you know, uh, but I have to do, I also do royalties to authors. So I have to think in quarters of the year, but we sold as many copies yeah. as I think we did in the first six months of the year um, already uh, since the any announcement came out in July. Uh, so that has been really fantastic. It's really opened up a lot of opportunities. It's gotten a lot of a lot of writers who had heard of the game and were interested in working on it move from being very very interested to being really excited. And I'm really excited to work to work with them uh, because now they can tell other people what they're doing and they don't get a black look. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and they're like, oh yeah, I heard about that in the Ennies, and you can be like, yeah, absolutely. yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So, uh, it's, and it's, it's, it's been really exciting because we, uh, you know, we, we've gone from can we release supporting products and expect to sell any of them to actually being able to sell some of our supporting products. So that's, that's, that's uh, maybe great. it's two people asking you, is there more? Please, I would like some more. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> Today, let's talk about uh, the core book, the one that people will be kind of picking mm -hmm. up, that um, they can mm -hmm. get on itch right now. Um, so tell us a little bit about the game. So you, you talked about World of Darkness, which I noticed is a dice pool system. And is, has that influenced mm -hmm. why you chose a D6 dice pool system for this game? I, I think uh, the biggest influence on why I picked the dice pool system for this game, and this is kind of the hard science of game design, I, uh, in 2016, I played Meg Baker's Siren for the first time, which used dice pool in that was the first place I ever experienced the kind of dice pools that we use in this game. Uh, usually dice pools are either like take the highest number or count all your successes. Uh, uh, John Harper kind of also does that with lasers and feelings. And then with Blades in the Dark and a few others, it's more of a yeah. like, give me the highest number uh, mm -hmm. that you get. In, in that, you roll your dice pool and you start assigning them to different sorts of outcomes. And I've had, recently had the, the big privilege of playing Siren with Meg, uh, who is, you know, working, I think, work, I think publicly has not announced that she's working on a, uh, a new edition of Siren. And that was really where every die had the potential to count in the die pool. So the bigger die pool you get, uh, the more likely you are to have good outcomes because you have a chance to like, you know, assign things and stay safe um, while you're succeeding. Um, but I wanted that sort of crunchiness, not crunchiness. I wanted that sort of uh, decision-making um, because it's hard on the GM to then sit there and think like, Oh, I, I see there's a mixed outcome here, but I, I in the, in the heat of the moment, yeah. I cannot think of anything that really fits what's going on, mm -hmm. uh, which is, the harder thing about, you know, and I love mixed outcome games. It's probably in the last mm -hmm. 10, 15 years, mixed outcomes are probably one of my favorite developments in mm -hmm. uh, RPGs. Uh, but for uh, a lot of GMs, including even myself, sometimes I just cannot think of what's supposed to happen on a mixed outcome. Uh, yeah. And other kind of, I sort of move a lot of that, shift a lot of that onto the player who's like, mm -hmm. I do this, but I don't get injured and I, and I don't get scared. Uh, as a horror game, it's really important to me that, like, you know, people are not completely, you know, uh, able to just stare at things and, and embrace themselves and be okay. Uh, mm -hmm. so I don't get scared, I don't get injured. Uh, and, uh, so that, that, that sort of was the biggest influence on the dice pool. I think where I saw the world of mm -hmm. darkness influence come in mm -hmm. was really sort of like that very concrete, concrete sense of place and time. 
Uh, I mean, I, a lot of us fell in love with World of Darkness, not for anything that was happening on the mechanical end, but because there was all those beautiful source books that were opening up very mm-hmm. real, specific locations to us and, and make us think about history and space and geography in ways that we had not brought into our games. And certainly Call of Cthulhu players were already sort of doing that. But uh, sure. World of Darkness, I think, hit a different group of people and were thinking like, oh, wow, no, you know this makes cities real and we can make them part of our fiction. We can make our, our everyday lives part of our fiction and kind of our sense of where we are in time, uh, part of our fiction in very concrete ways. And I think that's, that's how world of darkness, I think more than anything else really influenced me. Fantastic. Well, speaking mm-hmm. about settings, uh, this is set in a specific mm-hmm. location. This is in uh, yeah. Roseville beach. Tell us about Roseville Beach. Uh, paint, paint a picture. Tell us where we are and uh, and talk a little bit about your inspirations for why you decided to set it here. Roseville Beach is a queer town on a barrier island called uh, Rose Island uh, because I, I wanted it to sound as 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 coherent as possible uh, and, and be, be as easy to remember as possible. Uh, but Barrier Islands, for those of you who live on the U.S. Atlantic or Gulf Coast, know is, would know that they're very narrow sandbar islands. Uh, they are frequently, in the case of Roseville Beach, uh, which is, uh, you can probably tell, a, a, an actual map sort of that's been sort of like had the serial numbers filed off, uh, mm-hmm. is a... The, the actual, you know, they, they tend to be very narrow. Roseville Beach is a few hundred feet uh, from harbor side to shore side to where you actually get to the beach. Uh, uh, and that was exciting to me uh, because I grew up vacationing on, on the on, on the southern Gulf Coast, where barrier islands are, where so many of the nice beaches are in the southern Gulf Coast, and then came up to live in New York City. And so many of our great local vacation spots, such as Jones Beach Island or Fire Island, uh, are these sorts of super narrow uh, uh, barrier islands uh, that really kind of compress so many people together uh, and kind of create a space that's so easy to walk around, it's so easy to navigate, and it's so easy to identify 10 key locations, which I think is just super important to just have 10 key locations. And I tell people, like, if, you know, GM's running Roswell Beach, add whatever you want to it. It's, it's very yeah, much your team your game. Mm-hmm. But really, in my version of Roseville Beach, these 10 locations are the businesses or, you know, we expanded to 12 for the book, but these are the businesses that are in Roseville Beach. Everything else is somebody's house or apartment. Uh, and uh, because the town is, because the town is a summer, it's, it's one of those towns where, where uh, the population in summer is a few thousand and the population in winter is a few dozen. Uh, mm-hmm. That, that sort of compressed kind of flexible space was, was super important to me. And it's very much inspired by uh, this, this I, I said this was a, a you know obviously a, a real map with, with serial numbers filed off. This is a map of mm-hmm. Cherry Grove, New York, which has been uh, a queer space uh, mm-hmm. since the first half of the 20th century. Uh, a, a great British scholar named uh, Jack Parlett really just did a fantastic book on the on the history of Queer Fire Island, uh, mm-hmm. looking mainly at the arts, but also including so much of the other components. And Cherry Grove is kind of the oldest queer town there. Uh, but, you know, writers like James Baldwin and Frank O'Hara and W.H. Auden and Pat Highsmith all vacationed or spent time uh, in Cherry Grove. Uh, and that was sort of a, so this is sort of my homage to that very sort of compressed setting um, that is, has, has, a, has a strong grounding and sort of a real queer space uh, that's, that I've gotten to know since moving, moving north. So 
fabulous and talking about the location as well like you say it's it, it, when you're when you're reading through the book it feels like a place because you you've got all these little locations that you see and mm. uh, but also the people there as well because um you populate the town like you say there's some locals that are there constantly all the time there's like a few dozen so mm-hmm. they would know each other and there'd be familiar kind of faces um could you yeah. talk a little bit about uh, characters and NPCs uh, who will be playing and who will encounter uh, when we when we walk uh, into Rosewood Beach? So one of the things I wanted to ultimately do is a better NPC book, but I think one of the things that was really fun mm-hmm. with kind of focusing the town so succinctly on that map is putting two PCs in every or two NPCs in every location mm-hmm. that were identifiable. And I think one of my favorite things is watching different GMs and players connect to and relate to those NPCs in ways that I never imagined. Like I tried to keep those brief, those descriptions super succinct because I want people to read into them and, and connect with them as much as possible uh, and decide who they really like and who they don't like. Uh, and, and my version of some of them are so different. I, I think uh, there's one of the bartenders at a bar called Rosie's, which is one of the options for a place you can work. Uh, and I, I, always describe her as uh, 32 going on 72 uh, and a hardcore like 1970s Patti Smith fan. You you know that that she's working that night because as soon as you work in, walk in, it's mm-hmm. just, the, it's just the, the depressing songs from horses or, or what's on until somebody requests disco. Uh, mm-hmm. And I love Patti Smith. So, uh, yeah. And, uh, but, and, and then watching people connect with and, and identify different people, I recently ran a game for my local store and I tried to let the players really sort of bring out the NPCs they worked with a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. And because they have jobs in town, everybody, everybody who's a character uh, or a longstanding character in a Roseville Beach campaign is, is situated in town in a job. So they, mm-hmm. they really get to decide is my, is my, you know, my workmate art or Vic or whoever, um, are they, are they, are they likable? Do I like them? Does everybody else like them, but I don't? Do I like them, but nobody else does? You know, what are those, what are those things kind of going on there? Uh, and then you have like a lot of, you have a lot of connections to uh, kind of set stakes in your, in your interpretation of the mysteries in the book. Uh, because then you have a chance to say like, oh no, something's happening and uh, Vic's involved. Uh, mm-hmm. And you're not really sure that Vic knows what he's doing or, or, uh, Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm thick again. Or it's, you know, oh, not, not my friend Vic. Or, oh gosh, oh, Vic covered for me last week. I, I, I owe him Vic. So, um, yeah. but those kind of stakes that sort of bring mysteries, connect, that help mysteries connect with a player. So, it, it sounds like it's, you've got have all these NPCs, and you, when you're running the game, you really just let the players lean into the ones that, that make sense to them and then, then just run with it and, and, and let it happen. Yeah. Um, we have had a question coming in from the D20 Future Show um, about how, because you mentioned earlier you really liked, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. mixed outcomes, and they've asked uh, how you would recommend helping player-led mixed outcomes in a game. Yeah, no, so in Roseville Beach, instead of having uh, put it on the GM to mix outcomes, uh, there is a goals table. Uh, you, you assign your dice once you roll your pool to your goal, and then your risk of getting injured, and then if it's if, if if that's on the table, and then our risk of getting scared if that's on the table, 
And the players decide like, oh, I can make, I've got sixes, and two, I've got one six and two ones from this. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, and that's as, that's as good as I've got. So I'm going to succeed, but I'm going to get injured or scared and scared, or I'm not going to succeed. I'm just going to give up succeeding. Uh, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to get injured. Um, so that's that's sort of how we lean into letting them sort of uh, mm-hmm. decide what the what the mixed outcome is for them, uh, and then they can look at because you really can only get scared three times or injured three times before mm-hmm. in some sense you're out. And there's some guidance in the GM mm-hmm. section on what it means to go out uh, or what it means to kind of recover from those injuries and scares. Uh, you can just they as the player can decide, decide like okay I, I I only have one injury but I'm, I'm got two scares and if I get scared one more time I'm going to freak out and, and run out of, I'll probably end up freaking out running out of the building but mm-hmm. I can take one more injury uh, and be okay uh, mostly okay and then that also that can affect your future roles you get if you're not injured or scared in a way that affects what you're trying to do that that helps your die pool improve by one die uh, if you are you don't get that bonus die but uh, and I, I tried not to have them pulling dice out of the pool I tried to stick with mm-hmm. things that had to uh, or conditions mm-hmm. for adding to the pool. So, mm-hmm. so uh, mm-hmm. I hope that makes sense. Let me know if not. So, yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, mm-hmm. One question I had is, uh, so this is quite like a narrative game, and especially when you're sometimes leaning to players and giving them narrative control, obviously that's really great, but sometimes that can be intimidating for new players if you're used to something more structured. Um, so do you have any mm-hmm. kind of guidance on how to help players if they're having that moment where they're struggling to come up with kind of ideas and feel on the spot because I know I've had it at my table where I had a player where I'd be like and then what happens and they just kind of froze (laughs) so I don't know if you have any advice or guidance in kind of you know helping players that may be new to kind of narrative or or creating things on the fly I think these kind of mixed outcomes actually help players they don't have to decide how they're injured I can kind of talk them through like so they're like you said injuries on the table and if I get injured what is it likely to be like you know Mm -hmm. I'm climbing a fence uh, is it, you know, I fall on the fence? Is it I fall off the fence? Is it, you know, you know, describe the, you know, remind me what this fence is like. Are there sharp corners? Is it high off the ground? Uh, or, you know, if I give up that success on my goal, what does that mean? What does it mean to give up the success of my goal? Is it like, you know, am I just kind of on the other side? Is it I've been discovered or spotted before I can get over the fence? What's, what's going on there? Uh, and I think when they get a concrete sense of choice, they do need a little extra time sometimes to make those choices, but they're very, you're, you're, you're giving them some concrete dimensions of things to kind of choose from rather than sort of like, um, and it's, I think it's, it, it's the classic PBT advice, just, you know, uh, give people hard choices, but sort of made a little bit more concrete and they can sort of visualize as they're, you know, I, Die was brilliant and put everything, uh, the art director was brilliant, put all the tables on one set of pages. So it's really easy for me to grab that, print it out, and put that in front of somebody as a handout. And they can sort of visualize all the dice they need to place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that we also borrowed that from Meg Baker's site run. She has a nice play mat where you can see all the tables where you need to place dice. Um, so that, that to me, that tends to really help the player not freeze because they're like, uh, if they're freezing, they're they're having a they're having a genuine decision moment uh, yeah. where they actually need to make a decision. Uh, they're not freezing like uh, I I never ask a player to tell me how they were injured. I really kind of put the you know you're climbing a fence. 
you know, injury might include falling onto the the picket, or you know, it might include uh, falling off the fence on the side and twisting your ankle or landing wrong, um, or it might include getting spotted and have somebody throw something at you um, mm-hmm. when you when you thought nobody would be able to would, would be able to see you. Um, and I sort of tell, let them know what the risks are, and then I I make that call as to what the actual injury is, um, but they make the call whether or not they get injured. Does that, does that help make sense? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's perfect. Yeah. Um, my next question I was going to be on to, so we talked a little bit about, that, about the location and kind of the NPCs and mm-hmm. the world, uh, but I wanted to dig into the characters that people will be playing. So if people are listening to this and be like, okay, mm-hmm. I, I'm liking I'm liking this location. I'm liking the sound of Roseville Beach. If I want to create a character to walk through there, uh, what's character creation process look like and and who could I play? Well, you've, you've, you've done a great job in pulling those two things up because they kind of illustrate the two kinds of characters that are in Roseville Beach. There's long-term campaign characters who are people who work on the island. Uh, all of those characters have an origin story that sort of builds most of their skills. That's the, where did you really come from? Uh, and of course, some of them are supernatural. I think the one I, I, I always include whenever I do a set of pre-gens or run at a convention, I always include at least one shifter because people like having that one supernatural origin. Uh, but the shifter is not just a shifter. They're also a person who comes from the suburbs or do they, maybe they come from a small town or maybe they come from a nearby city. Uh, and the same thing with the, you know, other origin stories that are not supernatural in origin. There, uh, there's somebody like the fresh face who's very young and new and has a chance to reroll lots of dice as sort of a special ability. Uh, but they don't have quite as many skills and somebody who's older and, and uh, has a little more skills. Uh, and then they have a job on the island that sort of situates them, you know, where they are this summer in 1979, uh, where are they working? Uh, and that kind of tells you a little bit of kind of the things that the character, the player is interested in, uh, who they know. Uh, are they a person working at the, the little clinic on the island called the Roswell Care Center? Are they uh, working in, uh, are they working in one of the bars? Are they working in, uh, are they a piano player? Are they a backup dancer for a drag queen? Or, you know, who are, who are they kind of working for and with? Uh, and then there's always one strange event that's happened to them that sort of cued them in that Roseville Beach is a strange, weird, unusual place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are the three parts of those players. But then we also have a, a set of characters who are ready to run for your drop-in players, for those players mm-hmm. who show up and just like, hey, I want to like, you know, I'm here in town this one weekend and I want to play with your group if I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are called guest stars. And they are people who come to the island of vacation uh, or to do research or for some strange ulterior motive. Uh, and they range from the ultra strange and supernatural. I think we have somebody who was an ancient Greek soldier who who was uh, turned to stone by Medusa and then had been stored in somebody's house on Roseville Beach before, before you know, as an art object. Nice. And then, sort of, and then yeah. sort of woke up. Or, you know, just a local high school teacher who comes out for one week a year uh, and that's their, that's their, that's the vacation they can afford. Uh, uh, we have, uh, you know, we have, we have a whole bunch kind of in that range. Uh, and I had three of three great writers, uh, as a core, Alison Saib and, uh, Sharon Biswas write that section. Uh, the high school teacher was the only one I got to contribute to that because they, they came up with so many great ones. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. And, uh, I guess- I, was gonna say, I guess this is great for one shots as well. If, if people don't want to create characters, mm-hmm. you just say, yeah, let's just sit down. Let's play something. Here's a load of options. Yeah. Get go. Yeah. 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 
Uh, I tend to bring pregens that kind of show off the the character creation system, but like the uh, but that's because I'm trying to sell the game. Uh, a lot of people just just show up with quick uh, with quick uh, with guest star characters. I've had somebody stream the game who sort of wrote his own little guest star character uh, for a drop in player who comes who comes every alternate you know occasional sessions. Uh, and the, because the format is pretty easy to, to imitate, I think we, we pulled the idea of guest stars as a current, I sort of worked on that. We pulled the idea of guest stars from Troika, uh, the way Troika does character creation by just sort of like, Hey, here's a weird person you are. Give them a name. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, that's very much the, the, the feel we wanted for guest stars. Uh, something that would be easy to grab onto and range from the really weird to the really sort of everyday person who just gets entangled in this, in this you know, your regular investigation group, supernatural mystery. So, uh, so we speaking, lots of things happening there. So, speaking ahead, of supernatural sorry. mysteries, uh, I'd like to dig mm -hmm. into the kind of stories that we'll be telling. Um, so, yeah. what what happens uh, at Rosefall Beach? What what stories uh, are we going to be telling? Uh, the five mysteries that are in the core book uh, range from uh, everything from a drag queen who's uh, the the you know sole you know or lead drag queen at a venue, uh, and the couple who own the venue are breaking up uh, and are. I'm hoping this is not too much of a spoiler, uh, but uh, she begins seeing she begins seeing things during her performance, which freaks her out. She flees, and there's a chance that not having their star drag queen, the, the venue is going to close. Uh, and so sort of the, they're, they're called on to the investigators are called on to uh, sort of figure out uh, what's going on and who's, who's summoning these strange visions, what's causing them, uh, uh, what's causing this haunting. Uh, there is uh, for people who want a slightly more uh, mature theme scenario, Maxwell Landry wrote a great little scenario that's set in a bathhouse in the woods uh, there's a strange bathhouse in the woods and, uh, it's, it's playing rock music and it's been taken over. Um, it's been taken over by, uh, by some, some really powerful supernatural forces that have, have, have caused people to start disappearing into the bathhouse and you need to start to go in and rescue them. Uh, Cat Ramen did Girls Before Swine. Uh, sorry, I talked about those in reverse order, which is about, uh, uh, the goddess Circe coming back uh, to Roseville Beach because she was summoned, thinking that uh, a, a local uh, amateur hour sorcerer could control her, uh, and uh, she sort of takes the side. She sort of uh, begins having strange effects on Roseville Beach on the people who thought they could sort of summon and sort of bind her, uh, and uh, people start transforming. Uh, and those are, yeah, those are I think three or four. That's three of them. Uh, and then there, you know, there's a whole GM section with several, uh, more, several more leads mm -hmm. in the GM section on things you can sort of build in, uh, to your Roseville Beach campaign. Lots of starters. Uh, Richia wrote about a, a strange, uh, pillar that's sticking out of a sand dune to the, to the one side of town. Uh, there is an offshore lighthouse where supernatural events have been occurring. Uh, there were several things because this is very firmly set in 1979. There's mm -hmm. rumors of things that happened in 1978 uh, mm -hmm. that are mysterious events that still have people around who remember them and may have repercussions for people who are still there. 
Uh, so there's there's lots of there's lots of additional sort of leads uh, going on. Uh, and I in this particular book, I really sort of tried to make sure that our cosmic horror was very much grounded in mm. uh, entities that the players could confront. That you know, that okay. it, it was never just strange random gods showing up. It was also yeah. because someone summoned them, uh, mm-hmm. because somebody had an agenda and summoned them, and now you know they've sort of lost control of this sort of aggressive magic. So, so Cthulhu is not turning up. There's not going to be you know Cthulhu rising yeah. up <laughs> out of the beach. Yeah. It's, it's not that yeah. level of cosmic horror. No, because I think at this point everybody knows that if you run a boat in Cthulhu, he goes back to sleep. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know that. So, you know, there's... Yeah, no, no, sorry, sorry. Anyway. Spoilers <laughs> on the Call of Cthulhu for people. I, I, I joked recently on Twitter that I just... I, I don't think a god is very tough if you can just run a boat to him and goes back to sleep. Uh, well, we've all had days like that, uh, you know. Some things that are boats running this week. I'm going back to bed, no. <laughs> no I, um, in that story, I sympathize with Cthulhu entirely. Absolutely. Uh, totally relatable. Um, you you try to wake back. up, somebody runs a boat into you and you're, you're back. Uh, exactly. But no, Cthulhu is <laughs> not coming. There are other strange entities that will come, but they will almost always oh, yeah? be be tied to some mortal's agenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, the goddess Circe, the the you know something else uh, is almost always tied to strange to somebody else's mortal agenda. Okay. So I love in the you have a section uh, like how to run Roseville Beach and you do mm-hmm. spell it out really nicely, almost like building blocks with, OK, this is how you do it. You need the context, you need the event and what happened and all this stuff, mm-hmm. which makes it really clear for people to kind of write their own, you know, mysteries mm-hmm. and, and things like that and have that set up. One thing I was wondering is, as you said, uh, it's set in 1979 now some people listening and watching may not have been alive at that time have you ever had any interesting experiences where people because I don't know if you knew this but someone a young person said to me the other day oh were you born in the late 1900s which was quite the phrase that took my breath away and I was like yes but what a way to phrase that but anyway for people that weren't around in the late 1900s, have you had any interesting experiences of players trying to connect with that time, you know, or, yeah? The two big ones are drinking age and cell phones. Uh, and yeah. I expected cell phones. I did not expect it to be so confusing to people uh, because this is, you know, most of my audience is in the U.S. Uh, and in the 80s, we reset our drinking age to 21, which is kind of across the board, across the nation. Uh, but in the 70s, People at the age of 18 could not only drink, they could work in bars, they could be barbacks, they could be bartenders. Uh, there was no restriction on that. Uh, maybe maybe in a few localities or states, but not there was not some sort of national restriction on that. Uh, so that's, a, that's, that's always a fun one to try to explain. Uh, also, our, our drug laws were, were not so draconian in the 70s. They were, you know, that was sort of a, an 80s thing that our drug laws became draconian. So people are a little less freaked out if somebody is doing something illegal uh, mm-hmm. because it does not necessarily result in everything getting shut down or everyone getting investigated. Uh, those are two, those are two kind of goofier ones. The big one is cell phones. Mm-hmm. Everybody uh, has yeah. kind of forgotten how we sort of rendezvoused in an era before we had cell phones. Uh, and it's a little easier in Roseville beach. Uh, it's, it's, you know, most of the bars are on a couple of strips of boardwalk Mm-hmm. Uh, there are no cars there, uh, even now. Uh, and, uh, so there's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, you can't really call somebody to check on where they are, but you can literally just kind of walk around the, the strip of bars yeah. and go, are they here? No. Are they here? 
I don't, I don't see them. You know, it's crowded, but I don't see them. Are they over here? Uh, so there's a little, I think that's the the biggest struggle people have is remembering that they, they don't have yeah. cell phones. They actually have to go find their friends. Uh, yeah. Either, you know, uh, if they're not at home and not answering their phone, uh, mm-hmm. then you have to go, you have to go kind of around town. Hunting. And yeah. 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 And that's, that's very people. true. I, um, I remember that it was walking somewhere with my nephew and there was a, a payphone and he went, oh, what's that? And I'm like, oh, it's a, just a public payphone you can use. Uh, so, you know, people could call each other when they're out and about. And he's like, oh, that's a good idea for when you leave your cell phone at home by mistake. And I was like, sure. Yeah. Because that was that was the context because his whole <laughs> life it's been a thing. So, yeah, I can imagine that's definitely, definitely a thing. Um, One thing I want to talk about is I've been flicking through some images on the live stream uh, and Mm -hmm. links are in the show notes for people to go have a look at the art on on your website. Um, I want to talk about the art and it's all public domain stuff. Is that right? That is entirely public domain art. I I can take credit for none of it. Dai Shigarza, art director, did all the public domain research. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one of the reasons that we just, uh, one of the upsides is that uh, I, I got to really sort of like you know, let die do everything they wanted to do uh, mm. with with art and not worry about art budget. We could really focus on paying mm. die to do the research. Mm-hmm. Um, the downside is just public domain art is so focused on attractive women and men who are in action, mm-hmm. uh, and they're all and they're almost all white. Non-white characters tend to get stereotypically presented, uh, and. Uh, and so there's there's just that downside to to using public domain art. We we introed our we did an intro uh, at the beginning of the book that sort of touched on sort of like you know here's the sources we used uh, we were very inspired by but we know that there's lots of limitations in public domain art. Uh, there's not a lot of diversity. There's there's not a lot of diversity in body type, uh, much less uh, race and ethnicity. Um, and they're so, and they and they tend to be fairly binary in in their gender mm-hmm. presentation. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's you know, those are the downsides of public domain art that we were really lucky to have Dai do just some incredible research and identify mm-hmm. things that had either lapsed into the public domain during the fifties and sixties where things could still lapse uh, where they weren't automatically renewed, mm-hmm. uh, and then and even older stuff that has long been in the public domain just because it's it's art it, it's after I think 1928 right now, 1927, mm-hmm. something like that. Uh, but that's sort of kind of where we were with the public domain art. And it was just, it, it, it really kind of let I kind of loose to do some of these beautiful things where even inside the book, we're doing things that look like classic uh, mm-hmm. pulp novel covers uh, where we brought our own, our, our own context in. Mm-hmm. Uh, the art selection is absolutely beautiful and the way it's laid out, it really leans into the slightly creepy cosmic horror, but still like pulpy, fun and camp and queer. Um, so I think the selection of art is absolutely stunning and really kind of draws you in and gives you an understanding of the tone and the type of game uh, that you're playing. Um, with the type of cosmic horror that is kind of a bit campy and fun, do you have any guidance for GMs for like setting the tone and setting the vibe of the game for to, to let people know what sort of game they're in store for? I generally, uh, you know, what I generally do is just kind of let people know where we are and kind of what we're up to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I usually have people almost automatically click with 
with what's going on as soon as we sort of mm-hmm. do the strange events and we, we introduce the scenario. Uh, the tone that I usually have to remind people of is that we're also, we're generally engaged in some some level of heroics. I call it a game of cosmic horror, but this is mm-hmm. cosmic horror seen through the eyes of people like Clive Barker and Stephen King, where you are, you, you, when you encounter it, you're not immediately running, screaming and hiding. Uh, you are, you're kind of a functional person, but you're, these, so there's some heroics involved in this, but there's also some, it's a very street level variety mm-hmm. of heroics. You know, there's some supernatural things you can do, but you can't save the world in one, in mm-hmm. one session or even a campaign. You know, you're here mm-hmm. to kind of keep Roseville Beach as intact as you can, uh, during the summer of 1979 and kind of hopefully set it up so it'll be here next year as well. Uh, fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed. Uh, so there's, there, but it's very much the, uh, that sense of, of, of street level heroics. You're not going to radically change the nature of reality or get rid of all bad people, but you're going to kind of keep them at bay, uh, for a summer, uh, assuming you don't get too scared or too injured, uh, to function. Uh, but people, I feel like once I introduce this, this setting, Mm-hmm. And sort of the concept of the game, they tend to sort of lean into and get it. Uh, mm-hmm. that these are, these are people you want to, there's people you want to protect. Uh, you're, you're the only person there. You cannot rely on the police on the mainland who, 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 you know, view Roseville Beach as a place they get, they used to be able to go arrest gay people for being gay and now they're mad and won't show up again until they can just do that. Uh, so that's, uh, so it's kind of all up to you and people generally kind of get the tone uh, from there and both the horror and the comedy sort of kind of arise from their, their decisions of, of what to pursue and what to kind of focus on and how to approach it. Uh, so. Fab. So uh, if people have been listening to this and they're intrigued and they're interesting, where's the best place for them to go to, to pick up a copy? Uh, in the U.S., uh, you can get one through. We sell to tons of local game stores. People sometimes ask me, like, do you sell better on Drive Through or Hitch? And I think we actually sell our best uh, to local game stores through Indie Press Revolution in, in North America. Uh, right now in the U.K., I don't think we have a local store who's selling in the U.K. Uh, and so I, yeah, if you have it in your local store, I always recommend uh, getting a local store. I think... Print in the UK, drive-throughs, uh, print-on-demand service is mm-hmm. where most of my customers are getting it right now. Okay. Uh, or picking up the PDF on Itch, and we have the the link on Itch. And because Itch will let me link to any other site in the world, I think I have put most mm-hmm. of the places you can pick it up on the Itch site. Uh, nice. And then also, but if you want the PDF, uh, Itch is one of the best places. That includes uh, the, the PDF itself, the EPUB, uh, version and we have for, for extreme accessibility, uh, needs or for super simple needs. We also do just the plain text Google doc is linked from the itch page, uh, oh, for any person who's bought it. So you can make a, a link there or you can make a, a, your own local copy, uh, and sort of, you know, make handouts or whatever you need for your table from that sort of like really plain text copy right there. Uh, and then also both drive through and itch include uh, a consent sheet. And uh, mm-hmm. on draft character or on in-person character sheets and an online character sheet, uh, books, but also a, a consent sheet hosted in uh, Google Apps for Itch and then Excel for Drive Through. 
Yeah, just so you can be sure that everyone wants to play the game that you're putting forward and everyone's happy yeah, with the themes yeah. and everything like that. Particularly in a game like this, which has horror in and it has, you know, maybe mm-hmm. more risque adult themes, like you mentioned, like the bathhouse and things. Yeah. So just to make sure everyone's on the same page, always a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I guess, so books out now, people can get it at friendly local gaming stores or online, got your mm-hmm. any award. What's next uh, for Roseville Beach? Uh, right now, we have uh, two zines that are out. One by me that is mm-hmm. uh, just called Characters, which is some new character options for mm-hmm. Roseville Beach. The zine series is actually going to get collected next year into a project called Demo Lights, which oh, will okay. be a uh, compatible standalone game. That's another way World of Darkness sort of inspired me. I really like mm-hmm. the notion of compatible standalone games. So anytime you spend 30 something dollars on a book, I want you to be able to pick, take that book home and play that book without needing another book. Uh, but it'll be entirely compatible with Mulan and Roseville Beach. It'll have the quick start. It'll have the same goals as the quick start. Uh, but right now we, we included all the character options from that into a, a new zine called Characters uh, uh, that included some things that we didn't really get to include in the main book for, for character ideas, both in terms of jobs and working stories. Uh, and then what I'm really excited about is mm-hmm. uh, a collaborator named Norm Rose, who I get to, who I have the huge privilege of working with. Uh, it wrote something called Entities, which is, and Roosevelt Beach doesn't have monster stats. It's really you address the, the creature that you're facing or the cult you're facing and the group you're facing in the fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in the GM section, I say like, you know, most, most creatures, if you can figure out a way to hurt it, it should never need to be hurt more than three times. Uh, before okay. you, it's sort of off screen, Cthulhu sinks below the waves again, uh, <laughs> or you know, whatever. Uh, you three should boats. never, you figure it, yeah, three boats. Uh, <laughs> you should never need to do that more than three times. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it, 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 it's more of a matter of figuring out how do you hurt this thing. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I kind of gave Nora the challenge of like, we don't really have a bestiary in Roseville Beach per se. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have, you know, the mysteries and some mystery leads. Uh, like how would you write a bestiary for a game that doesn't have creature stats or monster stats or opponent stats of any sort? And Nora came back with, uh, for those of you who know the SCP Foundation Wiki, which is a, a, a fictional monster hunting organization that exists entirely in the imaginations of people on the internet uh, and is a fantastic source, uh, Nora gave me investigation documents for five different entities who may show up on Roseville Beach, and they range from a paired group of star vampires who uh, have been stalking the area around Roseville Beach, and then two years ago started showing up periodically in Roseville Beach. Uh, wow. And uh, what you have there is uh, the uh, the investigation notes of a detective who has since gone missing uh, about people he was investigating who had gone missing, including the most recent one from Roseville Beach itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, there's, there's, uh, as an homage to classic D&D, there's a mimic creature that was <laughs> dubbed from the okay. depths of the ocean, uh, and has a strange ability to just imitate anyone. Uh, there is something that is, has killed a park ranger in the woods. And all you have is his sort of like park ranger log, uh, to kind of go on and figure out that what is, what that is. And then there is, uh, there is the diary of a young woman who disappeared the summer before. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is something that is very obviously to anyone who's read it, a CIA front organization. Uh, okay. Yeah. 
Uh, and that is the last entity, Nora, because in the 70s, as, as spooky as the CIA has always been in the 70s, they were at the height of their spookiness. Uh, that was kind of the end of sort of their LSD research and, and, and sort of a pinnacle of uh, the CIA just assuming they could research, they could do anything to anyone wherever and have no consequences. Uh, and Nora sort of brought that kind of forward from the 50s and 60s into the late 70s. Uh, uh, or some of the stories we know from the 50s and 60s into the late 70s and has a, a, a CIA front organization sort of situated there in Roseville Beach. Uh, which I immediately added to the next thing that's coming up, which is the Bracknell Horror, which is an adventure uh, that also includes, will also include all the quick start rules. That'll be the third thing coming out of our scene series. Uh, and that, that organization will show up in that, in that adventure as well. So uh, we had, and that, that, and the entities book includes a little sort of mystery generator at the back that I wrote based mm-hmm. on the, the stuff that Nora had given us. And uh so that was that was really I, I am super excited about that entity scene. I had a blast writing the character scene, but when Nora handed in the entities, I was just like, I, "How do you show me up on my own project all the time?" You know? uh, but Nora is brilliant and just one of the, mm-hmm. the, the most exciting people I get to work with. So uh, one of of the many exciting people mm-hmm. I get to work with. But uh, uh, so that's kind of what's going on right now. We are also uh, coming to the end of our our initial two offset print runs. Uh, and we need, we are funding a separate new offset per run that will also fund mm-hmm. some hardbacks. And if it does well, okay. it will also fund a new set of PDF mysteries for Roulette and Roblesville Beach. That'll be pretty, pretty inexpensive, uh, on drive through mm-hmm. and hitch, but they'll be even cheaper if you, if you, if we, if we fund them, uh, mm-hmm. as part of this upcoming Kickstarter. And that's going to kick off, I think, October 17th. Fantastic. But um, I put the link in the show notes and on the screen uh, if you want to follow that. So you'll just get notified when it goes mm-hmm. live. Yeah. Perfect. That's one to one I'll put in my diary for sure. Uh, yes. That's all exciting stuff. So it's good to see that there's more stuff coming. So mm-hmm. plenty more things coming on, plenty more mysteries to be had and, and more inspiration uh, for your games and campaigns of this. That's fantastic to hear. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing and, and talking about the game and congratulations again on the award. Um, I do have a, a last question for you though, which is, do you have any um, RPGs you're loving at the moment or any recommendations you'd like to shout out for people? Two I've recently gotten, one I've recently gotten to play uh, over the past year that has just been one of my absolute favorite uh, pulp hero RPGs ever is City of Mist. Uh, and City of Mist, uh, has just been an absolute blast. It is, it is a return to big book RPGs, but with very low mechanics. Uh, it's, it's sort of like reimagining a big book market RPG without like a really heavy sort of mechanical load on mm-hmm. the players. So there's not like, you know, a hundred pages of setting and then 200 pages of, of like, you know, if mm-hmm. you know you're rolling initiative, then the dice work like this. Uh, it's really just a very kind of uh, it's a PBTA game with some strong fate influences in there, and it's one of my absolute favorites to sit down and play. Uh, I recently got to run for Dungeon Crawl Classics Day, my friend mm-hmm. in the game store, and I continue to love Dungeon Crawl Classics mm-hmm. as just a really really fun uh, dungeon crawling fantasy game. I think it has so much potential for just as as all kinds of fantasy. But so, but it's so really, really good at just doing simple dungeon crawling too. Mm-hmm. Uh, two that I, one that I have loved in its zine form that is coming to Kickstarter, I think next Friday, I think this Friday. Oh, 
exciting, uh, right? Is Nora Rose's, yeah, Nora Rose's Beecher's Bibles. Uh, and mm-hmm. I have never gotten to actually sit at a table and play it, but it is one of my, uh, it is one of the many games that Nora produced that, that made me contact her and ask her if she'd be willing to work on Roseville Beach. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, Beecher's Bibles is, uh, it is an American slang expression from the 19th century. Uh, Henry Ward Beecher was an abolitionist preacher in New York. And Beecher's Bibles uh, was, was a slang expression for shipping guns to Kansas to fight against slaveholders uh, who were trying to move into the Kansas Territory. Uh, and turn Kansas into a slave state. Uh, and uh, be, it is a really, really fantastic game uh, about, it, it, and we talk about like that kind of street level action, but like you're not superheroes, mm-hmm. you're just ordinary people who've decided to show up and try to to help abolish slavery uh, in this particular territory. Uh, mm-hmm. And then uh, Jex Thomas has recently released what I think is kind of becoming one of my favorite urban fantasy monster hunting games. And it's, you know, my weakness a hundred percent is, is sort of those urban fantasy games that have a really tight little setting and time period that they're situated in. And this is a uh, small town. I think it's in the Northeast called last pines mm-hmm. and it's set in 1994. Uh, and you are locals in last pines who are trying to investigate supernatural phenomena going on very strong vibes of Buffy and Supernatural, but very, very constrained to that like one kind of period. So it's very, it's like Jex wrote this game to make me love it. Uh, <laughs> like this very focused setting. Uh, and I am not normally a Forge in the Dark person. I think it's a perfectly fine system, but it's not one that normally I get excited about. But Bum in the Dark has changed that for me. And it is the very first Forge in the Dark game that I'm just, I'm just this okay. enthusiastic about. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, that is that is kind of four games that I'm, I'm really, really excited to play, run, and, and read right now. So Fantastic. Well, those are some great recommendations. And I feel like there's a little bit of something for everybody because there was a big variety in there. So hopefully some yeah. things for other people to check out and maybe some ideas for me to steal for new guests coming to the show, which is why I always ask that question. Um, <laughs> well, well. Uh, that is bringing us up to the top of the hour. I've stolen an hour of your time, Richard. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing the game it with us. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, love to have you back on for any other future games you have. So do keep us up to date. Uh, and if people want to stay up to date with you, where can they find you online to keep in touch? All right. Uh, you can find me on Blue Sky, Twitter, and Instagram at Rwick Studio mm-hmm. with no spaces. Uh, mm-hmm. And then because I was really, really not paying attention to what I was doing, you can find me on Mastodon at r-rook at dice.com. Oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, I, and uh, I think I'm r-rook.studio on Tumblr, but that's, you know, if you, if you're, if you're a hardcore Tumblr person, you will figure out where to find me. Uh, and, uh, and I think, uh, r-rook.studio is my blog. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on itch, where I also copy most of my blog posts too, is mm-hmm. r-rook.hio. Fantastic. Seems quite consistent online. So r-rook, Google that and you'll find you anyway. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. And thank you to everyone that watched and listened. We will be back next week with another new Indie Tabletop RPG to share with you. Thank you very much for coming on, Richard. And thank you very much to everybody for listening. That's all for this week. Bye. Bye.